This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce brands, helping merchants unlock revenue and deliver exceptional customer service. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 111 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Jacob Pachenik, the co-founder and CEO of Lettuce Grow. Lettuce Grow is an innovative farm stand that enables consumers to grow lettuce, herbs, and vegetables at home in just a few weeks. On a mission to inspire people to grow nutritiously alive produce while eliminating food waste, toxic packaging, and reducing carbon emissions, Lettuce Grow is empowering consumers to lead the transition toward a more sustainable food system. In this episode, Jacob shares with us his entrepreneurial journey from growing up in San Antonio, Texas with aspirations to become a vet to starting his first tech company, Tech Trader, at 25 years old, which failed but led him to start his next venture, Yellow Jacket, to launching a film financing company which produced over 35 films to building Lettuce Grow in 2017. We talk about the mistakes he made with his first startup, why his second company was way more successful than the first, how he started Lettuce Grow, and why he believes in team-led collaboration. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, we'd love it if you left us an awesome review. And don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can follow us on Spotify or check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Jacob. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for joining the show. I'm so excited to hear your story and building Let Us Grow. Thanks for being here. Haley, happy to be here. So you are on the west side of LA. I'm on the west side. Did you grow up in Los Angeles? No, I grew up in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Do you make it there? Do you make it back often? Do you have family still there? Not too often. My mom's there. I did live in Austin before coming out here. So I have a bunch of friends there. So every time, but not every time, but a lot of times I go down to Austin, I'll make a little trip down to San Antonio, but uh, I tend to favor Austin quite a bit more. So how long were you in San Antonio as a kid? Uh, until I could leave. Oh. <laughs> so what were you like? So tell me about your childhood growing up. What was it like to grow up in San Antonio? You know, it was, I guess, pretty suburban, middle-class, but not that traditional. I think both of my parents were outsiders in a bit. My dad came from Brooklyn. My mom, they had met in Israel and uh, my mom didn't want to live in the North where it was cold. So they went looking for a warm place to live and ended up in San Antonio and I was born. So they stayed. And then did you, do you have any siblings? I have a younger sister, 18 months younger, and then uh, an older brother and sister from my dad's previous marriage that are 10 and 11 years older. 
All right. And so what kind of kid were you growing up? I was a very curious kid. I think my older sister recently told me I was very annoying because I wanted to know how everything worked, why it worked the way it did. It was all like how and why nonstop questions. Like, why is the sky's blue? And your parents were like, oh my gosh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, shut up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stop asking me so many questions. Yeah. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a veterinarian. Really? Yeah. Why? Did you have lots of pets? We did have a lot of pets. We had like, I don't know, four dogs, Whoa. a snake, a bird, oh, rats. Rats. Oh my God. As pets. It started with one rat and then got another one and then somehow a whole bunch of other rats. Especially with your dad from Brooklyn, like having rats as pets, I feel like. <laughs> a little... Yeah. Maybe that came from my mom's side of things. Yeah. They're very smart. They're pretty interesting animals. And the the rat and the dog were pretty good friends. And then when we'd feed them, they would go and exchange food. You know, they the rat would go get the dog food and the the dog would get the rat food. That's funny. Yeah. So it's pretty non-traditional upbringing. My mom got us into horses uh, pretty early on. So spent most of my free time riding horses. So you just loved animals as a kid and you're like, I'm going to be a vet and just be around animals all the time. Yeah, I think so. But then I learned how long it took to be a vet (laughs) and that I wasn't as interested because it was a lot of school. You know, it sounds like you weren't really into school. I was I actually hated school. I hated it. And uh, it's great to see my kids now. They love going to school, but I would just look for any excuse to not go to school. It was faking being sick. Yeah. And then my mom like supported all those activities. She didn't really seem to care that much. So I spent, I think like one year, like 70 unexcused absences. Wow. So were you entrepreneurial as a kid though, growing up, were you starting things or having a lemonade stand or like looking back, what signs do you kind of see? It's hard to remember when I was really young, but the first entrepreneurial activity I remember it was when I was 14, I was a sophomore. One of the kids at school told me, you know, that his dad thought a company was going to report good earnings. And I didn't even know, you know, what good earnings meant. And I ended up calling my dad and asking him if he would buy this stock for me. And uh, he put my savings into it. And uh, I called, I must have called the, poor receptionist at the company three times a day from the school payphone to ask what the price of the stock was. And uh, I had ended up going up and I made $200. You're like, I'm rich. You know, that was it. Yeah, <laughs> that was it. And then I just, this was in the, what know, stock like was in the it? 80s. It was called Nichols Institute. It was uh, traded on the American exchange. So you had insider intel from a kid at school. <laughs> You were already doing a legal activity. Yes. <laughs> and I got away with it. Wow. And I think it gave me confidence for the rest of my life. You know, it just gave me a lot of risk tolerance as well. That one trade. Although it doesn't seem that risky because you had insider intel. <laughs> yeah. But I had no idea. You know, someone could have showed up with handcuffs and, you know, booked me. I don't know. 
So did you, did that start this kind of investing in stock kind of, is it, was that it for you? That's where you wanted to spend a lot of time with stocks? Yeah. I started getting magazines and getting all the newspapers and reading the quotes and I'd go run down and ask my dad, Hey, what about this company? What about this company? And I would say, yeah, that's a fantastic company. So I remember American standard. He's like, there's always going to be, you know, toilets. People are always going to have to go to the bathroom. So that's a great company. But yeah, so I learned about that. And then I wanted to become an investment banker and all that my teachers were like, don't become an investment banker. You know, you have to do something good for the world. What were your first few jobs growing up? So I know you invest in some stocks, it sounds like, but what kind of you know jobs did you have before college? Before uh, one summer, I had a job peeling wallpaper off of, yeah, peeling wallpaper off of uh, just like horrible bathrooms. I think it was like a military, like on one of the military bases, we were just knocking out the wallpaper. So I don't remember how long I did that, maybe a month or two. It wasn't really for me. So were you like, I'm like, what can, who hires for this? Like, is this the military base hiring? I think I blocked that out of my mind. I don't remember. I have no idea how that, how that came to be. So you peeled some wallpaper, anything else before you went to college? <laughs> I was like, so, you know, I, the, the, the riding horses became really big mm. for me. I was very competitive. I was like just Texas state champion. And I was on the, you were like a jockey the show jumping. So show jumper jockeys like for racing. So I did that like a lot so much that I didn't go to school for two years. So before that sophomore year where I got the insider information, like two years before that, I didn't go to school. Interesting to focus on horseback riding. Yeah. I was like traveling to all the horse shows like 30 weeks out of the year. I was riding, I don't know, six hours a day. That's pretty insane. So right during a time when everybody's going to high school, you're basically full-time riding horses. Yeah. Wow. That's a pretty incredible experience and like kind of cool of your parents to let you go do something different. Like my parents would have been, you know, straight now, not happening. Just got to stay on schedule school. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. Uh, very non-traditional. I don't think, you know, I didn't grow up with like seeing them in the traditional nine to five jobs or seeing any really bounds to anything. I think my mind was limitless in, in, in terms of, you know, what I thought I wanted to do or who I could be. That's awesome. And so you went to college. Where did you go? What did you study? I went to MIT. So even though you hated school, you were really smart. I was smart. I was a valedictorian of my high school. I don't know how that, how does that go together? Can you explain this to me? Like, how does someone who doesn't like school exceed, do so extraordinarily well? It probably sounds bad, but you know, when I was in like sixth and seventh grade, with, that's when I really remember hating it. That was public school. And I think it was simple, or maybe I thought it was I don't know if at the time I thought it was beneath me, but I just wasn't engaged in it. And I wasn't engaged, I guess, in all the social stuff. I think a lot largely because I was riding the horses and that's where all my, you know, interest was. So yeah, I just didn't really get a lot out of school. And I almost failed, I think seventh grade, I almost 
failed the whole year. But uh, with those two years I didn't go to school, I still had to go to this office building and take tests every once in a while. And they, they had workbooks. So I would just devour these workbooks. So I did like several years worth in the two years. Oh, so you didn't like skip two years. You were just doing a different path of school while you were doing the horseback riding. Yeah. yeah. I just went to this office building every like three weeks and took some tests. So, and then when I, when I went back to school, I went to, I think, you know, one of the best, it was a very small private school, but you know, a really great school in San Antonio called Keystone. And I really attribute a lot of my success to that. The headmaster used to come in to the classroom and say, how many hours of sleep did you get last night? And if you said like eight hours, like that's too much, you know, and would give us just so there's just so much work. I really learned time management, especially that juggling that and uh, and the horses. So did you do two more years at this private school basically to finish up your high school? I skipped, I essentially like skipped those years. And I, then I had to take tests at the private school to, to, te- you know, to like prove. So you did one year. So I did the full, like the normal, you know, I graduated the time I normally would have graduated had I gone to school the whole time. And I just skipped the two years. Got it. So you go to MIT, you're like, I want to be an investment banker from day one. Then I, you know, the school talked me out of that. So I wanted to go be an engineer. I didn't really know what. And I just asked them what the hardest major was. And uh, it was aero astro or chemical engineering, but chemical engineering didn't require a thesis. And I didn't like writing. So I picked chemical engineering. Okay. <laughs> I just thought I'd do the hardest thing. Jesus. I mean, that just sounds miserable to me. <laughs> because I'm the one that actually hates school. (laughs) No. So you get your degree. Did you have any like internships or jobs during college or after school? What was your first job? I did work at a a place called Brugger's Bagels for two weeks. Yeah, that didn't go over that well. And then there was uh, just various things in chemical engineering, like working for um, some of the professors doing like research, research stuff. I didn't really get into anything too much. I think I was just very, you know, I just saw school as almost like this obstacle that I had to overcome to get out of the way and like get on my resume or just like do the hardest thing, get the best grades, do it on my own. Yeah. And then off to what's next. Then I could go be an investment banker. Tell me, did you get into investment banking and how did that turn into starting your first company, Tech Trader? Yeah, I actually did not get into investment banking, but throughout uh, school, I was still trading stocks and I had this like little handheld radio thing I would take to the to my classes so I could track stocks. And I turned that, you know, $200, I think it was like, by the time I graduated, it was a couple hundred thousand dollars. So I did pretty well. And that was like in the 90s. So that was probably a lot now. And then were your parents like you're paying for your own tuition because you're making your own money? <laughs> I don't think I told them. I don't think I told them what I did. Towards the end, I showed my dad and then my dad encouraged me to start my own trading partnership at a school. So I left 
MIT and I actually started trading on my own, which uh, it would have been easier. I would have, I learned a lot through it. It would have been nicer to trade someone else's money, but uh, I did that for like, 18 months or two years until I lost all my money. And then start uh, went all the way to zero. That was like pretty crushing. Then I had to get a job and I called my best friend from MIT, Greg, and he was working at a company in DC and uh, said, why don't you come get a job here? And that was a software company. So I had to learn how to code really quickly. At the company, I was in charge of like onboarding new customers and doing the training. And then I I felt like I, I was a little restless. I wanted more. And so I took on a secret project like at night of essentially making a new product for them. That product, you know, we actually launched it and made, you know, several million dollars of revenue to this company that was maybe only making like, I don't know, five or six million. So it was significant. All the while I'm doing that, I am still trying to trade online to make my money back, to get back and um, use the internet. And I had to go to like all of these different websites in order to you know, to see what the price was, to see what the chart was in order to, to buy or sell. And so I had the idea that at some point in the future, stocks and options and commodities are going to be traded online, which was, you know, now it's like pretty obvious. And so I had the idea to start this company called Tech Trader. And then I don't know. I, I guess similar to like picking chemical engineering in my head, I'm like, well, stocks and options are simple, but in the future, all types of products are going to be bought and sold and traded online, not just like two, three, four letter symbol, ticker symbols, industrial equipment, networking equipment, packaging equipment, things like that would be traded. So that's where the idea of Tech Trader came was really like in hindsight, it was like a, a, a business-to-business marketplace supply chain type company. Kind of like an Alibaba? Maybe not Alibaba, but uh, the idea essentially was, let's say if you uh, had a packaging line and you were making tomato sauce and you needed you know, a certain piece of equipment, you would have to call right? All of these different companies get their catalogs, look at all the specs, or maybe go to the trade show. I only happened once or twice a year to learn all this stuff. I'm just like, wouldn't it be great if all this information was standardized and in one place? And um, there was uh, a new technology called XML, which is just a way of like representing data. And so the idea of really like representing all these products with XML and making it really easy for people to discover, you know, what the right products were for them. And so how did you, how long did you have that business? I started that in 97 and we lasted until about like 2001, like the crash, I guess 2001. What's one of the biggest lessons 
you, you learned in building your first company. There's so many lessons learned and especially the first one, you know, like the first business you start, I think there's just so many valuable lessons because you're just so fresh and starting from scratch on like everything. I could write a book on that. I mean, I was 25 and had a hundred employees and I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I pretended like I knew what I was doing. Probably, you know, the biggest like financial lesson I learned was, you know, there was a a competitor that we had that that got acquired for like high nine digits. And our product, you know, was superior, I thought, you know, in every way. And they got acquired by another competitor. And I just remember going to the industry trade shows and it was just very much on my own, you know, and not, not really friendly with who I thought were competitors. It was just more and a lot of, you know, a lot of what I wanted to do was, was to be like accomplished on my own or on our own. And it wasn't really, there wasn't a lot of networking and building, you know, within the community. And, you know, when I, one thing, you know, I learned is that, you know, there's not really like hostile takeovers in software or in people, people-based businesses. It's like, you want to know who you're going to work with and you're going to want to like them. And you're like, if you get acquired, you're saying you want to make sure you're at least friendly with those people. And so why have your sharp elbows out when you could be working together one day? Exactly. And so <laughs> I learned if I was nice. just... If I was going to dinners and having coffees and going over to the competitor's booth and saying, hey, I'm Jacob, nice to meet you, it was just much more open. I would have had the relationships. But I think them. that's probably a by factor or product of just being the age you were. And I think that comes from insecurity, you know, like this was your first company. You kind of were holding it tight and closed and you were like, I can't let anybody in. I don't want to be nice to anybody. I've got to look strong, come across strong and tough. And I don't know. I feel like that's probably just how I think a lot of kids would be, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I was that way. So good lesson learned. <laughs> so you, I assume you did not get acquired. We did not. There was a little part of the business that we ended up spinning off. And then that company became very successful. So what ended up happening? Did you have to shut down? It's essentially shut down. Oof. And uh, that was, you know, that, that was very painful. Yeah. That's a blow to the ego, right? Like that's a <laughs> blow to the ego that was once keeping things strong and steady, but then, yeah. Yeah. I mean, having to lay off people and lay off people that were twice as old as me that had kids and you know I'm gonna get emotional thinking about it but that that was that was really tough that was you know for me getting over that it's like that it's like your loss of innocence you know I had the innocence which allowed me to do the crazy trading and to start the company and get my friends to join and to raise all the money. And because I just, I had this optimism and this, I was naive, but I, you know, I sold it well. But then when I actually saw how things could turn bad, it was so hard to regain that optimism and that innocence. And 
you know, I used to, I could recruit anyone, you know, and recruit them at coming in and taking a lower salary. But after that, it's like, I lost that, you know, I didn't really want to recruit anyone at all costs. I didn't, I wanted them to really, you know, know what the, what the pros and cons were. And that's, you know, I think that's good as a human being, but maybe as an entrepreneur, you know, it's hard to be as successful when you're not, you know, totally gung ho, but it was, it was really hard for me to keep that gung ho. Right. Well, things sound, it sounds like things started to go kind of downward spiral ish and you had to let go of these people and that sound and then close the company ultimately. And that is a really tough thing to go through. And so how do you go from that experience of, you know, maybe you even had thoughts of, can I build another company again, you know, without hurting people or hurting myself in this whole situation without being burned again, you went off to start yellow jacket, right? So how did you shift? How did you decide to want to do another company? I still had some ideas because I saw what was happening, not just to our company, but the entire industry. We were sort of like web 1.0. And I sort of saw where like 2.0 was going. And I had some ideas, you know, for a new framework and a new way to think of things. And you know, in, in the time between, I went and visited a friend who was a uh, weather derivatives trader, who this friend I met at MIT as well. And I think I got him into trading and then he became a professional trader. And um, I, I became very curious about weather derivatives. And I saw his screen at his office and he had like 70 instant messenger windows open. And that's how he was trading with, with everyone. I was like, wow, this is nuts. And I just had this idea of like applying the framework I had thought of post tech trader to this problem of trading weather derivatives, essentially like this ability to read free form text over instant messenger and then turn it into like, understand what it is and turn it into like computer code to then, you know, interact with some database that could then like, you know, respond with computer code that would go through this translator and send it back to, you know, in English to the trader. So this was this idea. That's where uh, Yellow Jacket came from, which was essentially a weather derivatives trading platform. And uh, we helped standardize the weather contract so that, so that companies, you know, could buy and sell easily. And then um, rolled out the that same capability, not just for weather, but also natural gas, crude oil. With this being your second company, what were some of the challenges that you faced on this go round? Like how many, how big did it get? How many employees did you have? And what was the biggest challenge with this business? I feel like this company I did the right way. You know, I started much smaller. I didn't tech trader raised, there was like 20 some, $21 million and yellow jacket. I funded a lot myself early on. And then when we, I think we only raised maybe like $3 million or so. So it wasn't, didn't really set this high bar of, you know, accomplishment or of uh, sorry, high bar that we just, we yeah, that we'd have to hit. And 
also was very collaborative. It was very, in, very collaborative, you know, within the company, within the industry. I would go and sit with my customers. You know, the traders were so busy. They wouldn't like step away from their desk. So I'd go sit with a chair next to them and sometimes sit there for an hour, two hours of them just, you know, yelling at people on the phone and, and giving me like, you know, 10 seconds, you know, but I watched every single click they made and I really just got close with them and had a big understanding of their, of their needs. And then the much bigger companies, like the exchanges that had been around for like, you know, 150 years, they didn't really understand this at all. So they'd call me up all the time and say, can you explain how this works? So I would explain over and over and over again, you know, to these guys. And I didn't really see them as stealing our ideas or, you know, as like potential competitors. I really saw them as, you know, I want to build these relationships. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. With the rising costs of acquiring new customers, retention is a key focus for DDC brands. And creating outstanding customer experiences shouldn't be costly or a burden for your customer support team. This is exactly why Gorgeous is so great. They centralize all of your customer communications into one beautiful dashboard, personalizing each experience along the way, which not only helps you retain your customers, but also saves you time and increases revenue. Gorgeous works with over 9,000 brands, including Princess Polly, Olipop, and Boxu. So if you'd like to be one of them, head on over to Gorgeous.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast to get two months free. That's two months free of Gorgeous when you head over to Gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So how did you go from this tech world and finance, very finance and tech heavy into film? Because I know that you you know, had a company called Venture Forth, but how did you get into producing over 30 feature films? I'd sold Yellow Jacket to the, the parent company of the New York Stock Exchange. And I cool. ran so you it got for, a great exit from I Yellow Jacket. got a Jacket. good exit. Nice. Yeah, yeah I wasn't going to let the same thing happen again. Yeah. And I was thinking about what's next. And a friend invited me to a film screening. And probably my whole life up until this point, I probably watched like four movies a year because I was always like researching stocks or learning how to code or whatever. But I went to the screening and it was like the director and producer. They were asking like, did you relate to the woman? Did you relate to the man? Like, did you have any questions about the story? And something clicked in my head. It's like, you just need to connect with the user, with the viewer. Mm -hmm. And you could be successful. It's just like software. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like software, but you get to do it with like uh, with film. Storytelling. Yeah. Exactly. And instead of like improving the lives of 5,000 traders and helping them go home two hours early every day, I could actually impact 5 million people by telling a, 
a good story, a heartwarming story, or really what I wanted to do is tell stories that help people open their minds to new ideas and new concepts. Any films that we would know, any of the listeners tuning in might have seen? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, there was like 30, 35 films. One that a lot of people might have seen is the Jobs. There was like two Steve Jobs films, but it was one called Jobs. But one I, the ones I'm most proud of, one is called uh, uh, Before Midnight, which was the third of a trilogy. There's Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, then Before Midnight. Made that in Greece, and that was a wonderful experience with the whole cast and the director, Rick Linklater, and the other producers. And then my favorite was the smallest called Skeleton Twins, which is uh, Kristen Wiig, Bill Hader. It's you'll kind of laugh, laugh and cry, like laugh, cry, laugh, cry, laugh, cry. It's kind of an intense film with multiple suicide attempts. So, Ooh, yeah. But yeah, most of the time I was just telling other people, telling other people's stories and financing, you know, other people's films. And I, I hadn't really built the confidence in my own creative abilities, but I was confident in my own like financial ability. So it's more on the financing side of things. But I think, you know, I was trying to, you know, learn everything I could and probably did more films than a normal person would in that amount of time. And I was pretty burnt out by the 35th one. And uh, but the 35th one is where I met Zoe. He's your co-founder. He's a co-founder and co-parent of, of my, you know, two kids. She got pregnant not that long after we met in the whole scheme of things and just started to look at things a lot differently as a, you know, as a future dad and looking at the food that she was eating, the food that we were eating and just saw chemicals and everything. And it's like, you know, who's vouching for this stuff, right? (laughs) You know, the government, like, yeah. I mean, that's kind of scary. What was the scariest thing? The scariest thing. And it's like, I, was I started uh, seeing like, you know, it was back then it was like GMO, non-GMO. There was, you know, a lot of, you know, the non-GMO labels coming out. And I asked my friends, right, that went to MIT. I, and I asked all other friends, traders, you know, film people, everyone, Hey, do you know what a GMO is? And not one single person knew what it was. So it's like, well, who does know what this is, you know, and who's saying it's okay. And I'm not really commenting on GMOs or not, but I'm just commenting on the fact that we got so disconnected from our food, from what we put in our body, from what's like going into make our kids, you know, and that we're putting this stuff in that we have no idea. And it's really like, I understood the companies that were making the food, right? Because they're, they're public companies where there's a CEO and a CFO who has a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to make profits, not to, not to make healthy babies. You know, it's just to make profits. That's the only thing they're incentivized for. And it's like, you know, so I, just thought like, God, I just want us to eat food as nature intended it and not have any of this funny stuff in it. And saw, you know, to do that, I had to go to the farmer's market 
at like 2.30 on Tuesday afternoon or, you know, go to Whole Foods, the organic aisle and thought, God, that's really inaccessible to most people. And why, you know, why does it cost so much? So that I got so focused on that. I stopped with the film. I just kept saying, hold, I'm not looking at any other projects. And I started thinking I needed, I wanted to learn about organic farming and uh, invest in that. And I ended up meeting two guys that had built this like awesome farm in their backyard in Austin, Texas. And they wanted to make a much bigger farm and they needed money and they needed some business like know-how and I ended up decided to join them to fund them and actually run the run the company. And so I learned all about learned all about farming, which is very tough. It's just like any other business. You know, you got to do sales, you got to do marketing, you got to do finance, logistics, and you got to have your hands dirty in the ground all day long. So it's not like it's different. You know, it's not like it's some escape. I mean, but it is. I mean, there is this wonderful thing, you know, working on the land. It's this, it is an amazing thing. When did you, the idea for Let Us Grow kind of pop up? Like, when was your aha moment? Do you remember? You know, it, what I realized was that through all this stuff with the farming, was that really our, our problems in this country don't have to do with the growing of the food. They have to do with getting the food from the farm to the people. We built this like amazingly efficient supply chain that's great for sending Doritos like 2,000 miles. And then we put spinach on that. And spinach loses like 50% of its nutritional value in 24 hours. So we're sending, like we're killing produce, right? We're harvesting it. And then we're sending it thousands of miles. And it could be 10 days old before you get it. And what I realize is it's absolutely insane to go to a grocery store to buy fresh food. And that's why we go to grocery stores. Cause I get Costco and going like buying this stuff in bulk, but then you're like, I'm going to go to the grocery store twice a week to go get fresh food, but it's not fresh. It's not fresh at all. Right. And, and it, it never lasts. It, it lasts like last. three days in your refrigerator and you're like just throwing away so much lettuce. <laughs> Or yeah. vegetables in general. Yeah. 50% gets wasted before anyone ever eats it. Wow. And that's when I realized if we could take that waste out of the equation, then we could cut the price of fresh food in half. So that's where the idea from Let Us Grow came. It was like this big shift. It's like, do we have to harvest the plant before we send it? Can't we just send, can we send a baby plant? A baby you know, plant. A baby plant. <laughs> As you're having babies, you exactly. think about sending baby plants to people. Yeah. <laughs> but and the the whole vertical though, farming, like this, I have a lettuce grow. I actually asked for it for my birthday. I think it was like two years ago. Yay. Yeah. It was my COVID birthday. Yeah. So it was two years ago. And I told my husband I wanted a lettuce grow. And he's like, a lettuce what? And he got it for me. And I love it because it's like, we don't have the space to have a mini, any kind of farm thing outside. You know, we don't have a yard, but this really lets you have fresh food 
grown in like a really cool space. And it looks really cool because it's like this tall vertical old like tower with like plants coming out and it grows really fast and beautiful. And I'm like shocked how big the plants actually get with such a little seedling that you send because you do send baby little plants. (laughs) But how did you come up with the idea to make it into this kind of vertical, cool stand like this farm stand, I think is what you guys call it. Yeah. Well, I had designed something using my engineering mind, thinking about, okay, here's the different, you know, the different components we could use, how it could fit into the box and how it'd be easy to assemble. I had an engineering company make a prototype of it and I went and saw it and it was like the ugliest thing I'd ever seen. And that's when I had the idea, this thing has to be beautiful. It has to be super easy to use, right? People need to be proud of it of having it in their living room or on their patio, you know, we're all consumers in the end. Right. And it's just, we, we love the idea of learning how to grow, but not really, you know, we don't really want to spend hours and hours, you know, figuring things out. And so this was built for the non-gardener, the person who's never grown anything or the person who's kills uh, plastic plants. It's so the unit itself, I think, is beautiful. I put a lot of time designing that. But the real secret of it all are those baby plants. Because if you can get, you know, and the, the hardest thing of farming is like knowing what to grow, when to grow it, how to germinate the seed, how to get it to be that baby. And what goes in the sun, what goes in the shade, which you guys do advise on, which is so helpful. Yeah. But if you, if you get it to this baby, then I send it to you. It's so hard to kill it. Right. It's kind of like you're, it's like a, a teenager, you know, we got the kid to be yeah. a teenager and then. Yeah. You teach uh, me how to teach it, how to drive. And then it's on its own. Right. Yeah. 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 So, and the whole water system too, though, did you do that yourself with your engineering background? Cause it's like you put water in it and then there's this pump that puts the water through it. So it's like constantly getting watered. You don't ever have to worry about going out there and watering the plants, which is how all my normally die. So. Well, it's based off of hydroponics, which has been around, you know, it got, it's been around since like Greek times, but it's, it's really been developed more and more since the seventies. But really what I focused is just putting it in a very consumer friendly package, you know, until, you know, when I, we were trying to figure out, okay, how do we do nutrient dosage? All the horticultures were like, well, you know, you need to know how many gallons of water um, you're adding and this many scoops and so many gallons of water. It's like, hey, we're not going to ask the customers to figure out how many gallons of water, you know, left the tank. And that that's just a lot of work. So that's where I use my engineering degree to actually figure out, well, we should be able to calculate how much nutrients the plants are consuming because we know what you're growing, right? We know how many plants you have, where they're growing and how much of each nutrient the plants need. And so mathematically, I just figured out, wow, doesn't matter how much water they're drinking. This is how much nutrients that they need. And that like, I never still met a horticulturist who's, who could really like understand that model. They all think it's crazy because they went to school and learned something completely different, but it actually worked out. 
And it was little things like that, which end up being big things, I think, that really make it very consumer friendly, right, for anyone to do. What was your kind of um, go to market strategy, I guess? Like, how are you thinking about it? Or what were some of your next steps after you created your first um, prototype? Well, I thought that when we uh, launched the product, that we'd sell 1,000 units a day. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, I mean, that this is an amazing idea, been successful in the past. I partnered, teamed up with Zoe, who had great, you know, following. And I just thought this would be a no-brainer. And, you know, we turned on the site and it's like one sale. You know? <laughs> like, Zoe, what's going yeah, on? <laughs> exactly. Like, what? And then I learned all about marketing. So... What happened after that? You realized there's no sales coming in. What the heck are we doing wrong? How did you kind of speed things up? I don't know if we did speed things up. It was just a lot of, it was hard work, you know, and it was just learning a lot of things. And, you know, a lot of things I thought, oh, I just hire some people and they would figure it out, you know, which was kind of my early approach. And then when a company's so young and it's still like early on in its life cycle and it's a maturity, things are changing so fast that it's really hard for a lot of people to keep up. And that's where, you know, I learned, you know, I had the vision for it. I really needed to learn all of this stuff. So I learned a lot about performance marketing and, you know, buying ads on Facebook and, you know, all of these, these different things and really just kind of, it was a grind at really professionalizing the infrastructure right? To be, you know, to, to tell the story and not just, you know, rely on the PR, you know, the PR of it. But the whole way, I think I was so also focused on doing everything the right way. And it was less monetarily focused. And I also just thought this is the way. So even maybe it doesn't, it's not huge out of the gate, but in 10 years, it definitely will be. So I folk because I think in 10 years, it'll be as, you know, ubiquitous as uh, a refrigerator, you know, or a pantry, everyone's going to have one and they're going to, there's going to be certain things they get from them. But I was just focused on doing everything the right way. So selecting the best materials and, you know, everything's recycled and uh, recyclable and creating a giving program. And, you know, where we, for every 10 we sell, we give one to a school. So just do it, setting it up from the, from the get-go to be like a very responsible global citizen, you know, where it's, we're not just going to solve this one problem of food distribution and then create problem of creating like plastic everywhere and uh, chemicals, you know, the food and all this. So it's really like, we've got a, we're not going to create one new problem of everything that we do. And I was very heads down focused on that with the belief. I mean, I really did hope that it was more successful sooner, but in hindsight, I mean, it did grow pretty fast, pretty quickly. So, yeah, I read, I think today that you guys have what 2.5 million plants grown by your community. That's a lot of plants. Yeah, I think it's now it's like 2.7 or 2.8 million. Yeah, but it's, we've grown a lot of plant babies. 
So. <laughs> yeah, you've been sending out a lot of plant babies. <laughs> yeah. So what's one of the hardest lessons learned in building this particular business or just building a brand? Yeah. Well, one, never think things are over, right? There's always a way. There you go. If there's a will, there's a way. There is. And then and focus on that because that's where everybody else is giving up and you got to focus. You got to find, find that way. But I think early on, I was expecting that this was, you know, the, the greatest thing since sliced bread and, you know, going to VCs and, you know, talking to them and to get the, the company funded, I just thought it would be a no brainer. And people are just looking at me like I was crazy. And part of that I think is because most VCs are men and they don't do their own grocery shopping. I got a lot of like, what's wrong with whole foods? You know, I don't get it. And then, you know, there, I remember when one VC's assistant was in the room and then when we left, she's like, I totally get it. You know, uh, <laughs> but I have no <laughs> check writing power. <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah. And then, you know, the pandemic happened and the same VC that was like, I don't get it. What's wrong with uh, whole foods? Send me an email. Hey, do you have any of those in local inventory? Can I come by and get one? That's you know, hilarious. so did he end up it, investing or did he just want the product? No, he just wanted the product. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, for a 50K check. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> That's yeah. funny. Add, add a zero or two to that. But yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's just timing is also, you know, timing is a huge thing. And knowing your timing, again, knowing your audience, like I think. I had staying power. I knew that there was something here, but I also knew that it was mostly moms or soon to be moms that were the ones who, who saw the value in this. And, um, and so, you know, after a while, when I started talking to potential VCs, I'd want to know, I'd want to talk to the female partners, you know, people who got it. Cause I didn't want to waste my time with the men. That's so funny to hear you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a man say that, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, the women are raising our families and really taking care of our kids. And I think, I think it's, it's a motherly instinct of knowing what's, what's best for us and for the planet. And there is a lot of, you know, masculine energy out there. It's like, do more, you know, bigger, stronger, you know, more and, there's, I think a lot of the feminine energy of like the qualitative aspects are underrepresented. And that's so much what Let Us Grow is. You know, it's not on the business plan and the website, we talk a lot about like the return on investment and that the food has so much more nutritional value, more taste, and, you know, you'll save money after eight months. But there's this qualitative meditative, you know, aspect of going and seeing your plants every day and hearing the sound and the pride and having your own growing your own food and giving it to your friends and neighbors and sharing it with your kids. And that's what like keeps me going. Like when, when things are so hard, you know, every day, it's just knowing that I'm creating that joy in people's lives. We need to represent that those values, you know, more. 
Absolutely. It is really fun to just like go out there and get some herbs for the salad or something, you know, even if it's something small to just be like, oh, you know what? Actually, I can make this even more interesting. Get some parsley on there, get some oregano, mint, whatever in your drink. It's really fun to be able to go out and like feel like you have immediate access to fresh food that's your own. So, you know, as you know, starting and growing a business involves a ton of personal and professional growth. How have you grown personally as a leader? Chilling out. I learned to just always know that there's like a better version inside myself and there's a better version of the product and it's just have setting us high bar. And I guess it's okay for myself, but driving everybody else to the same standards, that can be tough sometimes. Have you ever gotten some really tough feedback internally from a team member? More like, you know, that I need like to constructive. chill out. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, maybe that was it. Is that why you know that you need to chill out is because you were told that you should chill out? Yeah. It was like, you know, after management meeting, you know, someone said, you know, that was a little intense. And I'm like, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't feel like it was that intense, but I just feel like I'm talking and having a regular conversation, but I learned to be more sensitive to how people could perceive what I'm saying or certain things. I just, I have passion and conviction. I don't even feel like I'm not being chill. I just feel like this is how it should be. But other people might hear like, oops, I didn't, you know, oops, I didn't do this the right way and maybe singling me out, which I'm totally not. But I was, I became more aware, you know, that more aware that people might take things, you know, sensitively. So Exactly. And I think that does kind of cut your edge in some way of being, of going fast, but there's a saying, um, you know, I forget exactly what the saying it's like, if you want to, it's like, if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. I like that quote. We're going to have to use that one in our social media posts. I don't know who originally said it, but my, well, you're saying it today on the show. So uh, (laughs) it's yours for now. (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to make sure, you know, I want to, I I see this company, I see a lot of longevity to it. I see that we're going to change the way fresh food is distributed. I need to build a team that's going to lead that. And it's not just based on me you know, giving direction. It's based on everyone's like uh, sharing the vision and their own confidence, their own nurturing, right? That they need. So a lot has been learning how to go from that, like very like founder led led type of business to more of a team led, you know, collaborative business where you really have to trust each of the individual team leads to have their own vision and how, you know, how they're going to build you know, their department out. And that, that's been, that's a, that's a challenging transition, but very worth it. Right. To shift from that, what you're saying, founder led to more of a a team led type of business. And it Mm -hmm. sounds like, you know, your role then changes to more of a coach ish kind of personality where you've got to support and, you know, help everybody else be their own team led person, (laughs) lead their own teams. Yeah. Exactly. 
Coach Jacob could call me. Is that what they call you? Or are you just no. joking with me right now? No, no, no. <laughs> All right, Coach Jacob. What kind of what what else in terms of advice do you have? You know, there's a lot of, I think, people that tuned into this show and they're thinking about taking the leap into entrepreneurship. And so what kind of advice do you have for people thinking about starting their own business or a brand? Like follow the breadcrumbs of your passion. You know, I asked my dad when I was growing up, it's like, how much money could you make if you do, you know, you do this and how much could you do? Right. Like where can I make the most money? Yeah. I was just trying to figure out how, what's the most efficient way. And he's like, you know, if you want to cut hair and you're like the best hair cutter ever, you're going to do well. And so the one thing is like, you got to follow, you, you got to put your heart and soul into it. And so you can't do it for the money of it or even the success of it. You've got to do it because like you believe in it so much. Like for me, it's like, I knew it already existed or it has to exist in 10 years or 20 years. So I'm just the guy who's doing it. I've got a job to do and I've got to make it happen. And whether people tell me what's wrong with Whole Foods or, you know, all the reasons why I'm still going to, I'm still going to plow through that. So you've got to find that passion and that conviction. It's almost like in another universe, this already exists and you can see to that universe, this belief and, and go all in. There's no, I've never had a plan B ever. You know, yeah, you have to be all plan A because plan A, like all the energy you have might still not be enough. I like what you said. You, you, I'm just going to kind of say it again, be all plan A. (laughs) Yeah. Like there's no plan B, but I love that. That's, that's really kind of what it takes, right? There's no backup. So you just have to make plan A work. Yeah. You have to make it work. So you have to be into it enough that you're willing to do whatever it takes, but you will make it work. Before we wrap up, what's next for Let Us Grow? What can we see coming next or soon? I started this not to help people grow their own food, but really to change fresh food distribution so that we had better food to eat. So we're really, you know, taking, helping consumers on the lifestyle journey. Now I have the food, like, what do I do with Swiss chard? How do I make it taste good in 10 minutes? How do I make my kids like it? What are some other things that I could do at home that are sustainable, that are good for my family, that are good for the environment? I'm also just continuously innovating on the design and looking at how can we reduce the materials? How could we reduce the shipping volume? You know, how could we, we've already reduced like carbon emissions, like one pound of carbon per pound of produce grown, we've reduced, but we could still even do a little bit more. So, and in doing all of these things, we make the product more accessible by lowering the, the price point, the upfront price point. So just more and more things to really support mainstream adoption. Nice. 
Well, I'm super excited. I mean, when you talk about Swiss chard and what to do with it, let me know because I don't really know other than putting it in a salad. So whatever plans you have to help educate people on what to do with these things, these greens, let me know because salad's about as far as I get. So I just eat a lot of salad. So <laughs> yeah. I'd love to or hear you can you grill the that. Swiss chard or you can really? use it as a wrap, like instead of a tortilla or something, right. you could uh, use it as a wrap. Yeah. A wrap. Yep. That's a good or idea. Saute it. See, I'm not the best in the kitchen, but maybe I should have said saute the Swiss chard, but you could grill it too. Yeah. yeah. See, yeah, I'm not a chef. I am. I'm not the cook here in the family over here, but yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jacob, for for being on the show and and sharing your inspiring story and all of your words of wisdom. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Lee. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.